listen to the word of the Lord. Now, I want to add something. If you're here most weeks, you know that at the end of this reading, I say, this is the word of the Lord. And I want, to, I want you to say something when I say that. We're going to practice this, and then I'm introducing this to you. And we're going to say something that Christians in India will say this morning, Christians in Africa will say this morning, Christians in South America will say this morning. Do you know how it is when someone gives you a good word and they, they say something to you or you receive the word? Have you ever struggled and you've like, God, please, I need to know about what I need to do. And you get the right word. Do you know how grateful you are? You're like, thank you, God, right? So here's what we're going to say after I say this is the word of the Lord. You're going to say, thanks be to God. Can you just say that with me? Oh, man, wonderful. So I'm going to read and then we'll respond that way in just a moment. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, and they said, He saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Would you read aloud with me verse 38 together? Are we ready? There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. I'll go on, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, way to go. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of reverence for God's word. Uh, next Sunday, we start Faith Promise. Let me just tell you this really quickly. And Dr. Larry Garman, if you don't know who he is, he's one of our favorites. He uh, has been in the jungles of Peru. So if you think about a place where there's nothing modern, he's been there for decades. And he's one of our favorites. He has amazing stories that he tells. And here's why we do Faith Promise every year. Uh, because as a church, we have a deep commitment to make a difference around the globe and in our city. And so every year we come together and we say, for a couple weeks, we think about it, we pray about it, and we say, Lord, what would you have me to give over and above what I'm already giving and to make a difference around the world and across the street? What would you have me give? And so we want to raise $200,000. Now, if you don't give in any way, this would be a great opportunity for you to do something generous because we give every penny of that away. It goes out the door. And so I want you this week to have conversations with your family and say, what, what if we gave the biggest gift to that we've ever given. I want you to think about that. So that's, that's starting next Sunday. Uh, so here we are, we're in this series, and we're talking about the heart of the Christian faith. faith. And I want to talk to you today um, about something that you and I struggle with. And this is the question I want us to wrestle with, is how do I win against sin? Meaning, how do I win against the things that I'm always struggling with? How do I do that? Well, we're looking at the heart of the Christian faith, and we're doing this for several weeks so that if you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple, you can be reminded again about the, the heart of our faith in Jesus. And if you're not, you hopefully will have a better understanding about what this is all about. And when you go to the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of it is the cross. There's no Christianity 
without the cross. Jesus of Nazareth was, was crucified outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Here's what that means. That means that Christianity is a historical faith. That means uh, Christianity is not a fundamentally a philosophy. It's not a nice set of ideas. It's not even a creed that we believe first and foremost. It flows out of what actually happened in human history. Because if it didn't, and even the Apostle Paul says this in one of his writings, he says, if, if, if Christ wasn't crucified and raised from the dead, then you're still in your sins and, and really you should be pitied. In other words, it's pointless. What's the point of it? Because it's a historical faith. So Jesus of Nazareth, a historical person, was crucified by Pontius Pilate, a historical person doing a historical act. He was crucified dead and buried, a historical act, and on the third day rose again. Happened in human history. That's what we believe as Christians. And so we're asking the question, okay, so if that's the case, then what does it mean? What does it mean? So we're working with this question uh, last week, this week, and we'll pick it up again in a couple weeks at the, at the end of Faith Promise. How in the world did an instrument of torture become the symbol of love? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not try, trying to explain human torture to you, but, you know, there's all these ways that empires have tried to get rid of people. You don't hear anybody talking about the, the rack. You don't hear anybody talking about the Iron Maiden, not the band. <laughs> It was a torture device. You don't, have, you don't hear that as like this thing that's like, oh, the, the, the rack, you know. The hundreds of thousands of people that the Roman Empire crucified. You don't hear about any of those other people. But here's this, this, this instrument of torture that has become the universal symbol of love. Why? Why is that the case? What does it all mean? Well, we say it's because of who hung on it. And so we're talking about that together. The Apostle Paul, when he talked about the cross, he said, listen, hey, when you tell people about the cross, when you preach about the cross, you can just expect that they're going to receive it as a form of foolishness and a stumbling block. In other words, what people want, what we're always wanting is we want insight into how to make my life better, or we want a, a strategy to make my life easier. And God's answer to the human dilemma is to be crucified, which doesn't really feel like insight. Like, what does that mean? And it's hard to accept. So last week we talked about Jesus as our substitute, that Jesus on the cross was our substitute. So what that means, and we're going to flesh out the implications of this in a couple weeks, that means you don't have to make anyone pay anymore. That means that you can stop scapegoating other people for your problems. Did you know that? And so today we're going to talk about how Jesus on the cross frees us from sin and from death and from the devil. So I want to talk to you about four ways, if you're taking notes, four ways that the cross sets you free. The, the, one of the earliest Christian uh, theologians, his name was Irenaeus, and this is, he had a question and an answer. And, and this was his question. He said, for what purpose did Christ come down from heaven? And this was his answer. That he might destroy sin, overcome death, and give life to mankind. So four ways that the cross sets you free. Number one is this. Uh, the cross exposes the powers that are against you so that you can see them. The, the cross exposes the powers that are against you so that you can see them. You know this. It's hard to fight something that you can't see. I, when I was a boy in Omaha, Nebraska, I would go out into the yard in the summer, and I would play in shorts, and I would you know, have sandals on or bare feet. 
and I would come inside, and maybe a day later, there'd be all these red, itchy bumps on my legs. What, what was going on? Well, you know, it's called different things in different parts of the country. The, the chiggers, or some people call them the noceums. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, you, you, don't, you don't even know something is coming at you and fighting you. Can't, in fact, you can't even see them. You don't even know that they're there. And, and one of the reasons that you struggle so much in life is that you just don't understand exactly what it is that you're up against. Now listen, I, I'm not even going to try to convince you that there are some sorts of powers that are against you. I think it's just a pure observation. It's observationally true. And, and I don't mean by that that's some conspiracy theory. I'm just meaning... If you just live for a little bit, it's the things that you run into. You know, like, what is against me? Why does it feel like things are so against me? Now, this is how we usually paint it when we're trying to make sense of all this. We, we say, okay, I, I know what's happening. Is It's good versus evil. And in our minds, those are two equal forces. And so it's this battle that's happening. Let me give you an illustration. It may not land for everybody, but there'll be a significant portion of the room that will go, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Star Wars, okay? Stay with me. You've got, on the one hand, you've got one of the good guys, if you don't know the plot line of Star Wars, and one of the good guys, his name's Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then he's, he's all on the good side. And then you've got the, probably the worst person on the, on the evil side, which would be Emperor, Emperor Palpatine. Are you, are you following me? Those of you, and, and so we, we think it's like that. We think it's this good versus evil. And, and so, so here's what we do in our minds when we try to make sense of this. We say, okay, well, that lets us, if that's what's going on, it's two equal forces and they're against each other, then that lets you to say, well, okay, I guess I am with the good people because there's a very small sliver of humanity that would want to say, I'm with the dark side. And so here's what we do. We, we then, cat- we're able to, if that's what's going on, we're able to categorize people and situations into good and evil. And so we can say, well, I, 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 maybe I'm not doing so well right now, but what I need to do is I need to do better and then I'll be more on the side of the good. Now, stay with me here. If that's how you conceive of the problem, the powers that are against you, you don't yet see the powers that are against you. So let me give you some basic Christian theology. Based on Christian theology would say it's not that there's these two equal forces, there's good and there's evil. It's not that there's not good and evil in the world or that there are these equal forces. That's not, what's, that's not the problem. If you want to put the two sides, the two sides are the love and person of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on one side, and all the rest of us on the other side, human rebellion on the other. That those are the, if you want categories, those are the categories. And so we're complicit with the forces that are against us. And so if using the Star Wars analogy, we're like Anakin Skywalker, who becomes Darth Vader, if you know the story. We've all gone to the dark side. And, and the way the Bible describes that is it's sin and death and the devil, and we've sided with those things. Those power, we've, de- we've decided by our choices that that's the way we want to go. In fact, Jesus and Paul, when they're both describing the devil, they say things like, he's the ruler of this world. The, uh, you're under the power of the evil one, John says in his gospel. Uh, you're, you're, you're facing the ruler of the power of the air. Paul says that there are rulers and there are principalities and there are powers and there are elemental forces and spiritual forces. And, and you might say, well, I don't, 
I don't know. And I just would want you to consider for a moment that this is actually an accurate description of what is happening around you. There are spiritual forces that are against you and wishing you harm. Like, like a group of spiritual Nazis that are out to get you and exterminate you. That's, that's what's happening. They're against you. It's a force. The devil's against you. I don't know if you know that. And then you have things like death. I, I don't know. Do you hate death? Like, I hate death. I, 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 one of the things, I, I say this to you often, but one of the things I enjoy doing and also hate doing at the same time are funerals um, because it's a moment when people are really struggling. And I, I've discovered that when you do a, a someone's funeral, it doesn't matter if the person died suddenly, you know, just a heart attack or some tragic accident, or if they you knew for a long time, oh, this is coming, you know, he's, he's going to die soon, she's going to die soon. I've discovered it doesn't matter which reason that the death happened. Universally, people hate it when it happens. And there are tears, and there, uh, there's weeping, and there's anger, and there's all this puddle of emotion that goes along with it, and questions like, well, how in the world do I go on now without this person in my life. And every time I, somewhere in the flow of the message that I deliver as part of the funeral, I, I read the words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about why we're struggling with death and the hope of a Christian. And he says this, this interesting phrase. He says, the sting of death is sin. Let me, let me see if I can help make sense of what he's trying to say. Because sometimes you hear that and you go, what's, what's he saying? We don't have them here, but you think about a scorpion. You know, you've got a scorpion, and the scorpion has on the end of it. It's known for what? It's stinger. And and that stinger, that stinger is a part of the whole thing. When you're stung by a scorpion, it's not just the stinger that stings you. It's the scorpion that stings you. But the whole thing reaches out to you with its stinger and stings you. It stings you. And so that's what Paul's saying. He says, when you're stung by sin, it's death that's reaching out for you. They're, they're together. And so if you hate death and what it does and the emotion that you feel around death and the people you've lost, then Paul would say you need to also hate sin because sin is what causes the decay of death. They're, they're in league together, the devil and sin and death. And, and the problem that you and I have is we don't know how to break free because in our minds, it's, it's like, well, they're two evil forces and it's good or it's good and it's evil. These two equal forces and, and I can't break free. And I, I think, well, I'll just do better. I'll pick a different side next time. And, and what happens is that we are blind to what's against us. I, I'm trying to tell you, listen, sin is against you. Death is against you. The devil is against you. And you and I have agreed to those things. Why? Because there's only two sides in human history. There's God and the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, his divine love for humanity, and then human rebellion. That's it. And you're, you're, you and I are on this side over here. Do you, do you see them? I mean, these, are, these are powers that are against you. Number two thing that the cross does to set you free. It reveals how deep uh, your problem is. It reveals how deep your problem is. Well, let me ask you a question. Is sin a debt or is sin a power? Now, listen, that's a trick question because the answer is both of those things. It's just that in some people's minds when they think about this cross that's right here, what they, they understand it to mean that it's only about paying a debt. 
And if the cross is only about paying a debt, then we run into some problems because once we say, okay, well, yes, Jesus, you died on the cross for me in my place as my substitute, which is accurate. And we, if that's how all the only way you conceive it, then, then you start to say, okay, well, the debt's paid, but why am I still struggling? Why, why are there temptations that I give into? And why do I have these patterns that I can't break? I mean, the debt's been paid, so why am I still struggling? Well, it's, it's both a debt and a power. It's, it's a power, and so if you're in the grip of it, that means you need to be freed from it, and it's way worse than you think. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3 is preaching a message, one of the first sermons in the New Testament by someone who's not Jesus. And this is what he says at the end of his sermon. Acts chapter 3, verse 26. We'll put it on the screen for you. When God raised up his servant, he's referring to Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your, and he uses this word, your wicked ways. That word there, wicked, is a, it's like a bucket word that means all the ways that you and I get things wrong. It's just a, a collection of like, it, you, imagine all the ways that we get it wrong, wicked. One of the early theologians in the church, his name was Athanasius, and he wrote about this, and he had this word for it, though. He said, I said, let me tell you what the problem is. He said, the problem is your corruptibility. You know, he says, you are you're corrupt. Now, listen, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that means that you are the bad apple in your school or in your company. Now, maybe you are. I don't know. I hope you're not. What he's actually doing, though, is he's, he's playing on this passage, and, and he might use it today. I, I think this is actually an accurate way he describes it. He might refer to like a computer file that's become corrupt. Have you ever tried to access something on your computer, and it says, you know, you can't find the file or the file has been corrupted? Have you ever had that experience? And, and when a file has been corrupted, that means you can't access the data because what's happened is all those pieces of data have gotten out of order. I, I didn't really understand the whole concept, and so I turned to the theologian Google. And um, I, I, the theologian Google, this is what they said about I, I wrote it down. He said, if a file becomes corrupt on your computer, listen, it means that the file has been damaged or altered in some way and is no longer able to be used or accessed. Th- that's me. If, I, if I, I'm under the power of sin and death and the devil, that means that I'm damaged, I'm altered, and I'm no longer able to be used or accessed. It, listen, have you ever stared into the abyss of a bag of chips at the end of a bad week and you're like, this is going to do it for me? Have you ever bought the cookies that you love and you're like, I feel so awful about the world in my life and I'm going to eat this entire bag of cookies right here. Is anybody else, no one but me? Now, you can do other things. You can stare into the abyss of a drink. You can stare into the abyss of an affair. You can stare into the abyss of a drug. You can, you can doom scroll your way. Why? Because you're experiencing the damage. You're like, I'm altered and I'm damaged in a way that I, I cannot, no, I'm no longer able to be used or accessed in the same way, and I don't know what to do about it, and I think this thing's going to fix it for me. Cornelius Planting, he wrote about this. He wrote this wonderful book, Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. This is what he said. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. He said, though we cannot always measure culpability for it, for sin, we do know that sin possesses appalling force. We know that when we sin, we pervert, adulterate, and destroy good things. We create matrices and atmospheres of moral evil and bequeath them to our descendants. 
By habitual practice, we let loose a great rolling momentum of moral and spiritual evil across generations. And by doing such things, we involve ourselves deeply in what theologians call, same word from Athanasius, corruption. Like it's all damaged. Like you go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, you go into the comment section of any article, you listen to any political discourse, and you just tell me that's not exactly what's happening in our world. Corrupt. And maybe you don't like it, but again, the Bible says that you and I have agreed to it. We're complicit. Now, I say this, I trot this out, this little story, about every six months, and it's time to trot the story out every six months. So if you're, if you're here, you, you probably know what's coming next. It's somewhat wrote into the, uh, an essay in the late 1800s in London, and they asked all these luminaries to answer this question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, one of the luminaries, a Christian, um, all these people wrote these essays, and they published them in the London Times, and, and um, all, everyone just said, oh, wow, how stunning that that, that insight that person has. And G.K. Chesterton just cut through it all with four words in answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? He said, dear sirs, I am. In other words, I am the one who has been corrupted. Or in the words of the great theologian Taylor Swift, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, right? <laughs> in other words, you're not, listen, you're not maladjusted to the world, and you just need to get adjusted better. You're at odds with the God who made it, and that's why you're stuck, and that's why humanity is stuck, and why you need to be set free. And the cross it shows you, reveals to you how deep the problem goes, which is a part of you being set free. This is the third thing. The cross shows you that salvation is God's work and not yours. The cross shows you that salvation is God's work and not yours. I, when, when, you're, when you face down the difficulties of life, I've discovered that everyone adapts. I, this is what I, my term for it. Everyone adapts what I call salvation strategies. In other words, things aren't working. The world or your world in some way gets blown apart. Maybe you didn't get the job. Maybe your marriage isn't working. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you feel depressed. You look around the world globally and you see you know, this war and this war, and it's just this endless stream of wars and difficulties, and you go, well, how in the world do I fix it? And, and everyone has a way that they are trying to make it work. They, they adopt, again, salvation strategies that they think are going to make it work for them. I, you might know the book, you had to read it in high school, and I read it in high school, but uh, Animal Farm, George Orwell, do you know this book? He, it's a political tale, and I'm not trying to tap into the politics he's talking about here. But it's all these different characters in this animal and how they respond to the difficulties of their life. And he's, again, painting a metaphor. But, but it's, a, it's a picture of what, what I'm trying to say here. They, they adopt, in effect, salvation strategies to make things work better. In other words, they say, okay, this is how we'll rescue it, and uh, this is how I'm going to make it right. So we have all kinds of self. I mean, it's, just, it's almost endless. You know, I, I know what I need. I need more knowledge. I need more insight. You know, I, you know what I'll do is I'll work harder. I, you know, I, I'm in the wrong job, I'm in the co- wrong career field, or I'm in the wrong relationship, or I'm in the wrong marriage, and if I could just change that position in my life, then it'll all work out. Oh, I know what it is. I don't have enough money. If I get more money, then everything is going to work out. These are all salvation strategies, and I think to myself, this is what will fix it. And so what happens when you have this way of thinking in your mind is when you come to the message of Jesus, the message of the cross, Christianity, you assume that's the same thing. It's no different. You'd go, okay, what? Okay, well, how do I position myself so that God will respond favorably to me? 
What do I have to do? And again, sometimes the way we talk about the cross uh, reinforces that it's really something that's up to you. And because sometimes people think about the cross kind of like a divine transaction. You know, you go to the store and you want or you need something and you walk down the aisle and you find the thing that you need and you walk up to the counter and then you take out your card or your cash and you pay for that thing and then you get the goods. And this is kind of in some people's minds, that's, they think this is how the cross works, you know, like I have to, I have to go to the store and then I, I, I want or need something and then I... God paid, you know, it's like, I, if I want to go to the store, what that means is I have to start going to church. And so if I want or need something, that means I need to start praying. And because and, God will hear me if I'm doing all the right things. And then I hear about the cross, that Jesus paid the debt on the cross. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. And then I, I get the goods in a way. And, and the cross, in, in that way of understanding, it, is just a part of some transaction where I'm doing most of the work. And I, I actually make it into another salvation strategy. Now listen, I'm not trying to get you to question yourself. I, I understand that you and I come to God really not understanding how this all works. And God in his goodness receives us anyway. But here's what I'm trying to say. That from the beginning to the end, from the start to the finish, salvation is only what God does. Only what you and I do is mess it up. That's what we do. That's how we're good at that, right? I got that one down and nailed. Salvation is what God does. And your salvation strategy will only get you so far in life. And it won't actually rescue you in the way you think that it will. It's an old illustration. I, I use it in our growth track. It's been around for a long time. But it's this picture of there's a, you know, you're in a chasm and you're on this side of the chasm and, and you, you think that God is on this other side of the chasm and you, you think, you know, I'm going to work my way up and I'm going to jump my way by, by how I, by the salvation strategy I come up with and I'm going to make it all the way across this long chasm to God. And like that's what has to happen. And no matter how good you are, what happens is you, you take that salvation strategy and it only gets you so far. And what the message of the cross is, is that the cross stands right in the middle of where you are and where God is, and God himself comes and bridges the gap and closes the gap because it's, salvation is what God does. That's, that's God's work is to save and to rescue people because this is not about you being better. It's about you being dead and coming back to life. Are you able to make yourself live again? No. It's getting a better job or, or more money or fixing your marriage. I mean, those are all good things in their place, but they're not going to make your heart come back to life. They're just not going to. Why? Because it's only God that saves and God rescues you. And the cross tells you that. It's salvation. God on the cross. Last thing. Number four, last way cross sets you free. The cross disarms what was disarming you with love. The cross disarms what was disarming you with love. This is actually the gospel for anybody who's an addict in any way. And let me define that. Gerald May, who's a Christian psychologist, wrote a book called Grace and Addiction. And in that book, this is what he says. He says, listen, there's a reality to the fact that all of us, in some sense, are an addict. I, you might insert the biblical understanding of idolatry right there. All of us take something and other than God, and we, we put a pressure on it and think, if I have this thing, uh, then I'll be healed, or I'll be fixed, and I'll have hope. And we go to it again and again like an addict looking for a hit. 
And we're stuck, though, in our sin, and we're complicit with it. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote about this whole reality in in the book of Romans, he said, who is it that will rescue me from this body of death? It's like, I don't know how to get out of my own problem. And and the cross, though, you see, you've been disarmed by life. In other words, it's a military image, right? You've had all of your weaponry and your shielding taken away and you're exposed and you're vulnerable and you're being beaten by sin, death, and the devil and you're like not winning and you're struggling. And so you've been disarmed. And so what, what is it that Jesus does on the cross? I'll tell you, I'm going to read you some my, two of my favorite passages of scripture. This is from the book of Hebrews. Listen to this. Listen to what he says about the cross. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, He too shared in our humanity so that by his death, by the cross, he might what? Break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. (laughs) That's good. Then listen to how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, which is a Jewish image, God made you alive with Christ and forgave us all our sins, having canceling the charge of our indebtedness. You see, there's the debt thing. Which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen, listen. And having what? Disarmed. Disarmed the powers and authorities. Sin and death and the devil. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. What does that mean? That means you can be free from the crippling fear that you're never going to get it right. That means that God has disarmed what was disarming you. That doesn't matter if that means that you have never understood what Christ did on the cross for you and you've been beaten by it. And it's like you're, you're so desperate for some way out. It doesn't matter if that's you or if you're the person, you've just got some hurt. You've never been able to get past. Something's happened in your past. You're like, I don't know how to get over it. And you keep playing it over and over again and keep trying to find a way out of this maze in your mind and in your heart. You don't, and you're disarmed. It just means it doesn't matter where you are. That means that Christ has disarmed what has been disarming you. He's the victor on the cross, which means you share in his victory now. And he does it by his love. I want to read you a story, and then we're going to take communion together that I came across this week. I want, to, I want you to hear this. This is so beautiful. I'm going to read it to you. My biological mother was an exotic dancer and drug user in Seattle. In fact, my biological father was one of her clients. She was young and struggling to survive in the 60s and became pregnant with me. She used drugs her entire pregnancy, which meant I was in the NICU detoxing when I was born. But instead of having an abortion, which was a very real option for her, she decided to have me and put me up for adoption. My mom and dad moved from Iowa with my two sisters in the mid-60s to Seattle for my father's work. My sisters were seven and eight years old at the time. They decided to adopt another child, me. My mother had contracted polio when she was four, and her two pregnancies were very hard on her body, so adoption was her only option. I was in an orphanage 
in Seattle when my mom and dad visited me at four months old. As the story is told, my father picked me up and I gave him a huge smile. He became teary-eyed, looked at my mom and said, this is my boy. The rest is, as they say, history. Interestingly, my mother was also adopted and understood the complexities of being an adopted child. I never felt adopted. I've only known my family as my family. I grew up with amazingly loving parents and never, not once, wondered if I was loved. In fact, my sisters would argue I was spoiled because I was adopted. In fact, when I was seven, my sisters told me I was adopted. The reason they gave was heartbreaking to me as a seven-year-old. They said, your mom and dad, your real mom and dad, wanted to go camping and didn't want to take you, so they dropped you off at an orphanage. Needless to say, I began crying and ran to my mom and asked, is it true I was adopted and my mom and dad didn't want to take me camping? To which my mother replied, it's not true they wanted to go camping. It is true that you were adopted, but, she said as she leaned closer, we had to take whatever came out with your sisters. We got to choose you. That early imprint memory of being chosen by parents who were under no moral obligation to adopt anyone, let alone the other 20 children in the orphanage, helped me understand the gospel 28 years later when I came to Christ. That I was loved by a father who chose me out of sheer and utter grace. He looked at me and said, this is my boy, purely out of love. It's why I think adoption is a glorious display of what God has done for us in Christ and why those who have been adopted understand something others may only experience as an abstract, abstract theological concept, the grace and goodness of God.